You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. What's going on? Tell me about the Melbourne Cup. I, what, what, <laughs> what do you know about it? <laughs> we live in a state that's um, fairly sports mad. So we get mm. public holiday for the Melbourne Cup, which is the race that stops the nation. We get a holiday for our Australian Rules Grand Final, which is Aussie Rules footy. We bring in all sorts of international things from Grand Prix to major tennis tournaments to all sorts. So we're, we're a sports mad state that we live in. I want to go see one of these Aussie Rules football. I'm a, I'm a big rugby fan. I mean, big. I'm a rugby fan as much as a rugby fan can be in in the U.S. It's hard to catch the games, to be honest. But yeah, (laughs) I've always seen those. The stadium looks insanely huge. Is that is that just from the videos or why? Why is it so big? Rugby's often stadiums of only about 40,000, 50,000. But once you get to Aussie rules football or cricket, the stadiums can hold 100,000. Yeah. But just the the field itself seems gigantic. Absolutely. (laughs) The cricket field, the traditional cricket field is ginormous. And then that's what Australian rules football was invented as a sport to play on a cricket pitch during winter. And so they're just enormous fields. And so once you put a stadium around that in a sports mad nation, there's 100,000 people sort of screaming and cheering. So I grew up in France and my, my dad is French. My mom is American. And then my best friend growing up was half Australian, half Italian. I, I was kind of in this school with a lot of people who came from various like international parents and, uh, and he lives in Melbourne and I need to, I haven't visited at all yet. I've never been to Australia. And I think that I've just got to soak in all of the different sports, uh, at some <laughs> point, just come yeah. I'm not sure what the best what what's the best time of year if you want to catch as much of all of the different uh, Aussie sports. Oh, it, that's the tricky bit. It's there's really not one right time of year. It's it's literally every month has a major international event in Victoria. <laughs> so it's um and you get a day off each time. Yeah, for many <laughs> of the days. I, I guess we don't have as much colonized history to celebrate, perhaps, and so um. We've found all sorts of other reasons to have public holidays. Andy Falshaw is on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well <done. laughs> Welcome. Thank you. There's been a lot of sports going on here coming coming back from uh, the kind of COVID crisis. I saw, by the way, news today that there was zero cases in Australia yesterday, which is pretty exciting. It is. It's It's been daunting and challenging, actually. So New Zealand did such a brilliant job and there's probably a bit of competitive spirit between the Kiwis and the Aussies. And um, Australia was going great. And then we had some somewhat lax security measures in our hotel quarantine system in Melbourne and cases escaped again and started to explode again. And so we're up to about 700 new cases a day in Melbourne, which Mm. on a US scale is still tiny. For us, it was too scary. And so Melbourne's just come out of an extended lockdown, which was really challenging. Like you, you were allowed out of the house once a day for an hour of exercise or one person to shop. It went on for a while, but at this end of it, I mean, there's a lot to celebrate in that now we can return to what they call COVID normal, which is 
mostly life as normal, except with still with masks and a few restrictions. So it's a remarkable achievement. I guess we're a bit luckier. You know, we're an island nation. It means the borders are a bit easier to control. But yeah, we're down to almost zero. And it was literally zero yesterday. And it's something to celebrate, but also with incredible challenges to have done that. It's It's been a real slog for a lot of people stuck in their home for an awfully long time to be able to manage that. So um, Bellroy is your company. I think people might have heard of it, bellroy.com. You make wallets and bags. I've been following what you've been doing, I think, for about 10 years, to be honest, since the very beginning, because something people might not know is that I, I, my very first like professional thing that I ever did was a Kickstarter for some wallets back in 2009. I think that we had the first Kickstarter wallet ever, which I think is saying a lot because there's been since then probably a thousand different wallets that have so been <laughs> made. But I always thought of of you um, and the work that you were doing just over the past 10 years is doing some incredibly you know beautiful and detail-oriented carry goods, I think is the category name that we've sort of like all embraced. But, you know, over that period of time, every couple of years, it just sort of like fall off and not check in and see what was going on. And that kind of happened over the past couple of years. And when I went to your website recently, I was just so impressed with how much the collection has expanded, how many different products that you've um, released and, and just kind of the scale of your ambition has continued to grow. So in general, like congrats for making it to 10 years, which is really impressive, but also from Thank you. kind of just, you know, following your your intuition and being one of those companies that um, the way that I would put it is like wallets to me, at least when I started designing it, it's kind of the same thing why there's so many to do apps. It's just like an easy thing to kind of get your hands around because it's, you know, it's a few pieces of fabric or leather and some stitching, but then to, to create a whole company around it is kind of a much different thing. Thank you. Um, and as you reference that carry category, I guess for us in, 2007, 2008, when we first started thinking of the space, there wasn't that term for the category and it was bags and accessories or it was travel goods or it was this weird sort of all sorts bin that people would throw different things that you used. And we're like, well, they're all carry items. You use them to carry your everyday essentials, your other things. And so we launched carryology.com in 2009 and that was trying to put a name to the space. It was saying we can see brands are designing and selling these things together. Let's do it. And when we looked at that whole space, we always had the interest in the entire category that we were helping sort of draw a border around. But exactly as you say, wallets were an easy way into it. And when we began in wallets, they were horrible. They were generally optimised to be easy to manufacture. They were massive Every card was separated, adding to all this bulk. And so when we looked at that whole category, we thought wallets were the most broken part of it. The the thing that we could get started on without massive investment, you know, fairly lean, fairly agile. And so even trying to associate the term slim with wallets. And it was like, well, Mm. if if what we do is try and eliminate that bulk and really bring it down to a much more carry-optimised format, then hopefully something would resonate. And so, as you say, we absolutely began in that wallet space and, and that same easier inroad for us has ended up flowing on and we see all sorts of other brands 
trying to enter that area as an easier on-ramp to the space. There was, I think maybe it was it was your website that had this, but um, there was just this very powerful visual that I remember seeing probably 10 years ago of like a wallet the, designed the old way and a wallet designed the new way. And one of them is like an inch thick and the other is, you know, quarter of an inch thick or something like that. And it's just all of those different extra folds of material. It, it seems surprising that there was still so much innovation possible within something that, you know, people have been carrying around for a while. And as with most innovation, what you're trying to do is work out which assumptions people have made that are not legitimate assumptions. So it's like, what paradigm can you break? And that thing back then was every card was separated and people believed Mm. everyone wanted their cards separated. And I remember the butterflies we had when we were trying to design several wallets that would store your infrequently used cards all together in one section because that eliminates all the leather and the air gaps between all those cards you're not using very often. And we were like, would people even be willing to just jam a wad of cards together and put them into a section? And so, you know, that's when we came up with the pull tab notion of maybe there's a way to access them with more elegance and less sort of clumsiness. But I remember back then it was like, I don't know if people are even going to go for this. Like it feels quite brave to ask them to jam a bunch of cards together. And so it's often you you sort of go in and say, well, let's see if that assumption the whole market has is wrong. Let's test it. Let's find out if people are willing to do that. What I haven't tried designing a wallet in 10 years. What are <laughs> nowadays people are are, you know, not carrying as much cash, maybe not carrying as many cards, you know, maybe you've got your ID. I saw I saw that you're kind of trying some new ways to integrate phone cases and and wallets into one product. And and that's been something that people have tried. But I guess in in many ways, the function of a wallet has maybe changed more in the past uh, 10 years than it has in 100 years. Absolutely. And then even just during COVID times, that's accelerated even faster. Oh, yeah. I'm not even wearing pants most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) You and I both. Um, So absolutely. Um, So first off was people were getting more cards because there were all the shop loyalty cards, all these things. Mm. And so the wallets were sort of exploding out of proportion and size. But then finally it started to flip and cards reduced. And once you've stretched a wallet, it's hard to shrink it back again. Generally, everything in it has grown a little and it becomes a bit floppy. And so there was a long period where there were more contactless payments, all these sorts of things happened. And so that's why, as you say, we were like, well, if the phone's the key thing that never leaves your pocket, what if we can put a few cards onto that in a really elegant, nice way? And so... Other things we do, all right, well, if a wallet used to need to carry 14 cards, what about now those that only need five or six? And and so it's been almost reducing, reducing cards over the last maybe seven years or so, really, and trying to find ways to do that in a more elegant, more delightful experience. Now, this this is going to sound like a hostile question, but I just want to ask for myself because I think I went through this as an industrial designer thinking about what I wanted to do with my career, some, you know, entrepreneurially. Why does the world need another company making bags and wallets? Why is that important? Oh, it's such a great question. And it's a question we ask before every single product we do is why does the world need this product? And does it? <laughs> and so there's generally, when you look across our range, you'll see that 
almost every product we do, well, basically every product we do comes at it from a different angle. So it might be emphasizing a different trait in the product that most people don't normally look at, or it might be finding a new way to help you transition between two modes that used to be held separate. So it might be a bag, for instance, that instead of buying a work bag and then a leisure bag, you might have one bag that moves seamlessly between the two. But then the other thing we really focus on is the brand, the materials, the inputs, and what's happening as a result. So Bellroy's been a B Corporation since 2015. And one of the things we really take seriously is can we introduce whole new ways to look at material streams, supply chains, those sorts of things that go about it in a much more responsible way, but without giving you frumpy solutions. So we talk about, can we have performance sustainability? So can we create materials, interactions, design details that are more considered that have a lower impact, but still bring delight and joy in the use and and create products that you want to hold on to for a thousand days plus, products that improve with use rather than getting worse, products that grow into your needs and and you create an emotional connection that you don't want to throw it out and replace it regularly. You you almost feel more loyalty to that product as it's grown together with you over the years. And so I think we, number one, come at each design to create a unique bundle of properties and attributes and features that that does things a bit differently. It, it um you don't have to think as much about it. It's more flexible. It can move through more environments with you, but then also the way the product's made, the factories it's made in, the material inputs, um, the work we do on trying to move the whole industry forward, all of that can help leave, I guess, a, a slightly better direction for where more of the industry's moving and, and, and the things we try and innovate on can flow out to other brands and hopefully influence the way they do business as well. I want to dig into each of those different areas, but um, setting aside the functional aspect of what you're trying to create with each new product, do you have a checklist or benchmark that you're trying to hit in terms of durability or some of these aspects around the footprint of how something is going to be manufactured? going like that you're testing against or something like that yeah so it's really different for every product because um when you're in the sustainability and impact space i think you can have five experts in a room who've all been in the space for 20 years and almost every one of them will have a different strategy for how we think we're going to sort of get the world on a better track and there's very few things that everyone agrees with But one of the things is products used and loved for as long as possible. So most of the impact in a product like ours that you don't wash or tumble dry or do those things to, the vast majority of the inputs, around 90%, depending on how you cut it, are before that product ever gets to the consumer. And so if you can keep a product being used and loved for as long as possible, then there's only one product that serves that three or five year life rather than two or three as shoulder straps break or things fall out. But part of that used and loved for as long as possible is that you can create a wallet that will last 100 years, but it's probably going to be so bulky and cumbersome and 
such thick materials and such over-reinforced things that you won't actually enjoy using it. And so it will probably end up in the bottom of a drawer somewhere or, you know, neglected in a cupboard and you'll end up replacing it with another one. Or the trends and behaviours and daily habits of people will have moved so much that it's very unlikely we're going to be using wallets in 100 years. And so mm. each time you come at a category, you're, you're trying to have a really candid look at it and say, what is a realistic lifespan for this product? And then how can we exceed that but make sure the product itself can keep moving and evolving with the consumer's needs? And instead of putting incredibly thick, heavy, super strong materials in that will last 100 years, let's try and actually have a realistic look at the lifespan of this. So each product, we, we try and create, I guess, a behaviour map. We try and understand the longevity of, like, how long do we expect this to be useful and then we try and design it in a way where we're really trying to have it used and loved for as long as possible on a realistic time frame. So I guess each product, that, that means each product gets a different brief as to, you know, if it's a bag you're using to carry your weekend stuff, that's likely got a much longer time frame on it. And so we should make it more versatile. We're expecting it to move through different case scenarios. You know, the pockets aren't too prescriptive. You should be able to use them for items that aren't even invented yet, but will be invented over the next two or three years. So that scenario versus a phone case, you're pretty much locking it to a particular age of technology. You know, it has to be designed to exactly fit the iPhone 12 or exactly fit the Pixel 4 or 5. And so that has a shorter lifespan, expected lifespan, but that means you don't want to over-invest on the amount of materials in it and the amount of inputs in it. You, you want to keep it a bit lighter, a bit more lean, because you know it's less likely to be being used in 10 years' time. It's a way of saying each product needs its own custom specification and, and kind of realistic expectation on how that will live going forwards. So the shortest lifespan products are probably then your phone cases and the longest are your bags, kind of based on what you're saying, maybe a couple years to like a couple decades or something like that is the range? I'd even say we'd expect things like organizing pouches that are fairly generic in their use or dot kits. We'd expect those where you're not using them as much as a daily bag. We'd expect that you should get 10 years out of those, really. Like, things are not expected to change as rapidly in that space. But then you're right, a phone case is shorter, but, you know, we still have a three-year warranty on our phone cases where most phone cases are three months, if you're lucky, or minimum sort of government regulation by the country. And so even when we look at phone cases, we're like, well, often the phone gets passed down to someone else. Could the phone case stay on that phone, you know, better protecting it, doing that? But you're right. I, I think if you can get a phone case to last three, four, five years, you're doing well. Where if you're designing a pouch or bag, you should be trying to get it to last longer than that. And for those items that are shorter in lifespan, what are you, how do you think about the end of life and the recovery aspect? I know that you're thinking a lot about kind of the inputs on the material side. How do you think about the outputs at, at the end of its life? Oh, absolutely. And this is such a challenging area. So when you look at things like recycling streams, most established economies uh, and even emerging economies are not great at 
taking post-consumer products and finding a way to get them into the right rebirthing stream. When we look at it with a sort of pragmatic lens on, it's like we've got to do more of the work before it ever gets to the consumer and then try and give it the longest life possible in the consumer's hands. When it comes to post-consumer, it, it gets trickier. Um, for instance, we're working with a couple of partners to see if we can do take-back collection points, how do we re-break it apart, how do we disassemble, those sorts of things. That That's harder for a brand like ours that's mostly a digitally native brand. So we don't have our own shops around the world, our own storefronts that can do those collection points or those repair services. And so we're currently in discussions with people around, could we supplement their catchment, their net, and sort of bring our product into that? But all of those are goals that we know aren't as achievable yet. And so most of our focus has been on radically reducing the impacts before it ever gets to the consumer and then keeping it alive as long as we can. So you've been working on a lot of different innovations around materials and using some of the innovations that have been created by others. Let's talk about first kind of the problem that you see with some of the more traditional materials that are out there. Leather is one of the big ones that is being used for all kinds of carry type of products. Probably people are somewhat familiar with some of the issues of leather, but um, if you could kind of like explain some of the issues and maybe explain some of the other materials and what the problems are with those, that would be a really interesting just kind of overview for people. Yeah, let let me try and do justice to that. Um, (laughs) So the reality is that animal proteins, meats, those sorts of things, there's still enormous demands for them in the world. And we love seeing so many of the alternative meats being pioneered at the moment, really developing some great things. And and we're trying to support some complete alternatives to that sort of livestock source. But in reality, there's so many animals still being raised and slaughtered for the meat that contains, that all these hides are coming off those. And the hide's only a small part of the value of something like a cow. So in most markets, it's about 10% of the value. But that hide, when you treat it and create a beautiful leather from it, you take something that could have otherwise been sort of composed or or broken down or buried in a hole or or disposed of in a low-value way, and you get to rebirth that into a high-value material that can have a very long, useful life. And so first what we do is we try and mitigate issues around that. Working with one of the great environmental sustainability groups in the leather supply chain, which is called the Leather Working Group, we helped pioneer and became the inaugural and ongoing chair of an animal welfare subgroup that was saying, you guys do so much great work in the environmental stewardship space here. What if we actually started to bring in some animal welfare lenses to this? And as the largest global organisation working in this space, what if we started to improve animal welfare practices for all the major players that engage with your certification framework? So, First, we try and sort of mitigate any of the issues we can see around leather and try and create a a better stream that gives you more confidence that those leathers can live a long and useful life. But then 
We also want some complete alternatives to leather. Sometimes it's because people have a very strong value association around leather and some of those issues, but it's also that leather's brilliant in certain applications and it's not as good in others. So it's like, what are some alternatives? And many of the alternatives over the last two decades plus have been petroleum-based. So you basically drill, you suck up virgin fossil fuels, so generally petroleum-based products, hydrocarbon-based products, and then you create, first it was things like PVCs, polyvinyl chlorides, that those plastics are essentially a hard plastic. And then you add plasticizers, which were traditionally in the form of things like phthalates that are, are trying to soften that plastic and make it more malleable. So a lot of the earliest alternatives to leather that we're trying to create a material property similar to leather were coming out of these petroleum-based products that those plasticizers had real issues, off toxic off-gassing, all sorts of things. They've started to address those issues, but often what you're doing is you're still taking what's essentially a rigid plastic and trying to make it soft. And over time, that creates all sorts of issues where those plasticizers often evaporate out. And it's why like vinyl seats at the top of a car, a classic car, you'll often see them cracked where the sun hits them because they sort of evaporate out much faster. And so a lot of these petroleum-based alternatives degrade over time. They can delaminate, they can flake, they can crack, They and, and they're just not as pleasurable to interact with. And so then, you know, they started to move on to polyurethane family, which is a bit better, but there's still all those issues. You're still coming out of virgin fossil fuels to do it. And then some of the things we've been really excited about in very recent times is some wholly plant-based alternatives. So we're working with um, a US-based group, Natural Fibre World and Company, working on a new family of materials that they call Mirim that is all plant-based. There's no hydrocarbon catalyzing in there. There's it's, it's all plant matter and they're, they're doing some really interesting cross-linking through kind of very original chemistry. And so they're still not up to the longevity of leather in some applications, but in other applications, they're now totally sufficient. And so it's like, where can we find, like, we'll start with brand badges and some of the pools and some of the small points where it's not as demanding a use case and that that material can live a very long and fruitful life. So we're, we're trying to now find other alternatives or another solution. We've just launched a um, limestone colorway with, that doesn't have any leather on it. And to do that, we're taking recycled plastics and generating microfibers that are very soft and beautiful touch points and that sort of thing. So we're generating a recycled content, high recycled content microfiber to give you all those beautiful touch points and the sorts of things. But none of those are yet up to the ability to go into a wallet and live a really long, fruitful life. But they are totally up to the spec of going into lower demanding touch points or beautiful little brand embellishments or other areas like that. So I think it's that so many of the leather alternatives have had compromises that swap one challenge area for another challenge area and, and we've wanted to avoid those but now that we're finding some compromises that feel like they're building on a platform that with some rapid refinement might well start to properly match leather's performance in those areas so i, I guess that's when i'm talking about like 
direct substitutes for leather. There's then other things where it's like, well, what if you just make it in a woven? And it's like you're not trying to replicate the traits of leather. Mm. And so we certainly do that. And we, we've swapped over to, you know, most of our bags are predominantly wovens that are the vast majority of them are made from recycled polymers that are, you know, re-extruded, re-woven, and then um, it creates a really lightweight, flexible, beautiful bag that you just don't need the leather for. Sorry, I talked a lot there. That that went on. But. That, no, this is exactly. I I I've, that was the perfect length because if someone asked me that question, I would have probably gone uh, way longer trying to find my words. So that was actually very concise for the amount of information you were able to pack in there. But what it made me think of is, I think. This is not going to be an original idea, but there's a lot of people thinking about the 21st century as the century of biology, whereas the 20th century was really more about physics and chemistry and engineering. And we're seeing, like you said, you know, some really interesting meat substitutes coming out. There's a lot of new things going on with DNA synthesis. Like, There's a lot of interesting things going on right now, and it would be fascinating to see where we are with that 30 years from now. And if you were designing a material, an imaginary material that had all of the properties you want out of something, you know, what do we love about leather and what do we find could be better? Like, can you imagine what that material would be or like what, what its properties would be? Oh, so it's, it, we certainly play with these exercises fairly regularly. And um, I think the first thing is um, like one of our favorite definitions of quality is fitness for purpose. Mm. And so when you ask, you know, is a Ferrari a good quality car? Most people would say yes. And I'm like, well, why do the fenders keep getting knocked off when I try and take it four wheel driving? Obviously, I don't have Ferrari. And I don't take it four wheel driving. But it's like, what is the intended use? And what what traits is it trying to bring to life? So mm -hmm. sometimes they're functional traits, sometimes they're emotional traits, sometimes they're social traits. And so I think there is no one great material. There is no one great stream. When we think about our responsible material program, at the moment we have it focused on several different areas. So one of them is single-use plastics are rampant in the world. We can see that the waste, that there's not much value in collecting them. And so you don't have great collection things. And so most of them go to landfill or end up in our oceans or do these things. So it's like if there's a way we can reward people for collecting single-use bottles and give them a second life that's rebirthed into a premium product, that's solving a current job. I, I really hope in 50 years we no longer have that problem. We either have enzymes to break down the plastics or we have, you know, we've completely moved off virgin fossil fuel plastics and we're now on whole other areas. But for the next 10, 20 years, we probably have this problem of it's like, how can we address that waste stream and start to mitigate the, the impacts that's having in the world? But then over in other areas, we're like, well, we need more carbon sinks in the world. And so one incredibly high potential area is regenerative agriculture. And it looks like if you can do sophisticated kind of complementary crops with livestock rotations, you can build a vibrant ecosystem below the surface level in the soil. You can, instead of like ripping every field, spraying it with pesticides to kill everything and then starting from scratch with synthetic fertilisers, what if you create a vibrant ecology below the surface 
that can suck so much carbon out, like into deep perennial rootstocks or into um, vibrant microorganisms that are all generating this stuff. And so if we can help promote regenerative agriculture through certain plant matters that come out of this area and you then weave great things, then you're not only creating a beautiful natural feeling material, but you're also creating a carbon sink that's sucking huge amounts of carbon out of the air. And then there's other areas where you don't want to like create material sheets that they then cut and have all this waste. So what if you can grow products in the shape and the form that you want the consumer to experience it in? And so then you start thinking of what if there is these incredible you know, microorganisms that kind of grow and, and build product in the shape that you want it in. And so it never goes through. Or the partner we're working with, Natural Fibre Welding, with their Miram family, the incredible thing is through shear forces, you can break down the cross-linking in these leather-like materials. And so it can endlessly go through a loop. You take this material, you feed it between two rollers going at different speeds, and it turns it back into like a putty that you can then mould and shape and re-cross-link, re-polymerise and have a second life and then a third life and then a fourth life. So I think it's like, oh, my gosh, yes, there's so many exciting possibilities in that space. And I doubt it's going to be one solution for everything. I think it will be really understanding how do you take supply chains from all these discrete steps? How do you take fewer steps and just grow something that's already in the shape you want to use it in? And then how do you create a circularity to it where it can just endlessly re-loop? And then you have all the beautiful things of, all right, well, how do you improve the smell? How do you improve the adaptability? How do you improve the texture and hand feel? How do you improve the durable water repellent finishes? How do you how do you grow all of those into the actual feed material so you don't have to apply them later as processes? It's quite a sci-fi idea that... Um I even think actually sci-fi hasn't really explored this area very much. When you when you look at uh, sci-fi movies or books, it's oftentimes a very like metallic plastic vision of the future. Whereas the idea of how could we grow objects or how could we grow things, uh, materials that can be functional. Nature gives us so many materials that we don't really have the ability to commodify in a way that can be used. Like if you look all around you, you know, bone or nail or like these different or hair, like these are, these are materials that we do turn into products, but we <laughs> have to grow a whole person or human or, <laughs> or animal or plant or something to create that material. We don't have the ability to synthesize it, but it, it would be fascinating if we could. Uh, so you mentioned your point about the fact that it's often true that many sustainability minded people will kind of come to a problem with very different opinions or different points of view. I'm curious if there are other opinions that you hold or that Bellroy has like uh, in general prioritized that are strong opinions that, that you have that you use as a filter. Um, you've mentioned durability and kind of the fitness for the function. What are some of the other lenses that you look at when you're assessing the design of a product or the approach of like building something new? Yeah, I love this space. So we have our environmental guidelines where it was trying to build essentially a hierarchy of things of what do we care most about 
And then once we've ticked that box, move down to the next level. Can you tick that box, move down? And so, you know, number one is make products that are used and loved for as long as possible. The second was eliminate serious toxins throughout our product and packaging. So the first one is, okay, every new product has some impacts that it has in the world. So make the fewest new ones possible to service the goals in a long life. Then it's like, okay, things that are harmful to life, we should get rid of those. We should get rid of the pesticides that are really noxious as they move downstream. We should get rid of things that are carcinogenic to humans and others. We should get rid of things that might impact our gut flora and fauna. You know, we used to go, our pesticides are fine, we've tested and it doesn't work on that sort of the pure human biological system, but we're we're part of this much more complex ecology where we have life forms in our gut doing all this seriously good work for us. And if we're swallowing all these pesticides, are we inhibiting their ability to do the work? So it's like that second one is about removing the toxins. Then the third is like biodegradable or recyclable materials wherever they make sense, wherever they can perform at the level required. And, and then we go down, you know, reduce waste and energy consumption. And then the last one is actively pursue better understanding. So all of those essentially came out of a cradle to cradle framework, but with a bit of a massage as we tried to make them more relevant to our area. But the other thing that I think is radically important is as you were describing so much of our materials and science felt like it was at almost a mechanical level and there's this incredible opportunity to move into things at like a biohacking level or this sort of more complex area when you step up to a more complex a more meta overview of an area you actually find so many areas have interdependencies and influences in other areas And one of the things with science and progress over the last, I'll say, 100 years plus, is we keep trying to simplify things by putting blinkers on and only looking at a bit of the pie, like a little bit of the problem space, Mm. because then that makes it feel more manageable and addressable, where now there's incredible thinking around dealing in more complex spaces, more nebulous spaces, spaces where you have to understand the interrelationships of many systems. You can't just say, oh, we only look at this little bit of the system. You have to look at all those interrelationships. And so I think for us, through our own sort of engineering backgrounds, we loved a series of thinking called lean manufacture and then lean thinking. And that sort of evolved out of the Toyota system. But it was so many people are focused on part of the puzzle. What happens when you go higher and look at the entire chain and try and eliminate waste in the entire chain. So then you don't have to apply it later. What are whole chunks of the system? And so I think a lot of our time is also spent looking at the entirety of systems and is there efficiencies or can we eliminate waste by redesigning the entire system rather than just a tiny part of it? I know that you joined um, B Corp about five years ago, and uh, we've had quite a few B Corp companies on on the program uh, before. What was your thought process on on why you wanted to join in the first place? So we've always had a for-purpose angle to what we do. We've we've always had a strong philanthropic approach. There's lots of things we want to see if we can help within the world. And when we were a very young company, we still didn't know if Bellroy would survive. Like we were going to give it everything we had and sort of see what would happen. And so a lot of our first work was in fairly 
basic approaches to things to see if we could get the shape of the business and the brand about right. But then once we started to get real traction there, we said, okay, you know, we know we have good intentions, but we actually need a third party to come in and call bullshit on us if we don't have it right. Like, uh, are we actually living up to our promises? Are our promises sensible promises? Like, are uh, the sorts of things we're pursuing making sense? And so we we wanted to look at a whole series of ways we might do that. And so we sort of looked at the platforms out there. We didn't want to design something bespoke because we knew lots of people are already working on this. So where are the great brands putting that effort into a platform that will keep evolving and keep progressing? And we've had a friendship with a lot of the Patagonia team for many years. They, um, in many parts of the world, they help sell our product and do all sorts. And they were like, hey, you know, we rate B Corp, you should have a deep look at it, kind of really try and understand it. And the thing we loved about it is we find certification systems in this space, if they're too prescriptive, they can't evolve quickly enough. So like some brands are all about local, some brands are all about global. How do you have a system that can say, well, whatever your primary focus is, are you actually making an impact and going about good ways in that? Because the world needs both. Some are using science, some are going back to pure nature. And when you look at the B Corp system, there's many areas you can be given points for achieving in. And you don't have to try and achieve in every single area they prescribe because necessarily in certain areas, if, if your focus is on globalisation and reducing poverty in, and health in third world, that's very different to a focus on local community and, and kind of really deepening the roots exactly where you are. So it was a system that said, are you motivated by things beyond the just profit? And are you setting great goals, great systems that then we can come in and check that you're actually living up to those? And so I think we just, we really liked that it wasn't too prescriptive. It didn't lock you into only the way you thought of when you signed up and then all of a sudden you discovered there's a whole different approach that might be even more effective. It leaves room for you to keep moving and evolving and it's a system and a platform that is still moving and evolving as more great brands join up. You know, Burton joined up recently. There's all sorts of incredible brands now that are on there and actively trying to progress that whole platform. And so we could see it would keep evolving and keep remaining as relevant as possible. Well, how do you see the relationship between business and, and doing good changing over the course of the 21st century? I think people have recognized that it's something that in the way that capitalism has to change. And that's why things like B Corp exist and a lot of companies have joined B Corp. If we can get more companies to think that way, where does that lead us? What is what is that intersection of, of kind of business and the welfare of, of people and, and the planet kind of get to ideally in your mind? Yeah, so I, I think there's maybe two parts to this. One is that I think there was a modern idea that did a lot of damage. And that was, you know, the sole purpose of a business is to maximize shareholder returns. It's like, that was just nonsense, right? Like businesses are as diverse and multifaceted as humans are. And to think that every business should have one goal, number one, when you go one goal, you generally break everything else around it. And then that they should all have the same goal. It was like, 
that feels so wrong on so many levels. And so I think part of what's happened as we've broken out of the sort of Milton Friedman kind of broken paradigm of profit's the only reason a business is there and it's its only goal. Business is just a vehicle to achieve some things. And it's like, what sorts of things do you want to achieve? Businesses should have diverse goals, different goals, goals that suit the people who've all signed up to that mission and that sort of trying to bring this new vision to the world. We're finally realising there's lots of different types of visions that businesses can exist to serve towards. And then I think the second is just the brilliant feedback loops and visibility and transparency things that are now available. It used to be really hard to see behind the brand serving that product when you didn't have the internet, you didn't have great media companies and podcasts and all this knowledge sharing area. And so I think the ability to sort of look behind a brand and its practices and start to have external parties assess it and understand it. I think that's just now at a level that was never previously possible unless you only bought local goods in your local area where you knew the founders and the makers and you could kind of go and see what was happening behind their workshop. So I think now that we're at this global scale, it's like finally you can see behind the curtain much more than you've ever been able to. And I think that's starting to mean brands and businesses are being more held more accountable to the things they don't talk about. <laughs> and they and if they make a promise, you can now kind of find ways to look behind that promise and see if they're actually delivering on it. And so that consumer awareness is holding the businesses and the brands more accountable in a way that just wasn't possible before the internet and global knowledge sharing. I think the way you paint it is very attractive and reminiscent of how I think about it. I think for sure the maximizing profits side of of the gradient is, I think most of of the consumers even would say that they don't really see it that way and want uh, something that's trying to do well by the planet. But then you have kind of the other end of the spectrum that I think has grown over the past decade, which is like a firmly anti-capitalistic kind of mindset that is more about kind of the dismantling of that system. And I find myself sometimes, I have friends in a very wide breadth of like opinions. I find myself being like stuck in the middle sometimes just sort of trying to defend capitalism to the people who are against it and defend the idea of like, let's do more than profits to the people who are much more capitalistic than I am. Do you ever find yourself in that position? How do you how do you defend capitalism to those people who maybe are disillusioned by it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first off, we love putting things in buckets and being right. able to deal with that bucket. And I think when we talk about capitalism, it's like, well, what form of capitalism are you talking about? So, you know, you can have a brand like Patagonia that has done so much they they're a profitable company. And yet they've they've changed so many industries and so many brands and they're changing practices every day and they're still nowhere near their goal, but they've made so much progress. So you can see that within systems, you can have different performances and different arrangements of that system. And I think almost never, like it's very rare that the best solution space is on the extreme end of something. Just as like when you go to the extreme end of socialism or the extreme end of capitalism, 
it's like both of those systems break down in multiple ways when you go to an extreme end. And so if you're going to start to come back in a little and say, well, <laughs> let's not try and have this one really easy ideology where I can just say it's all about this one thing and everything else be darned. Well, there's probably not currently one extreme version of a system that will serve all the goals we have of looking after humans, looking after animals, looking after the planet, looking after current generations and future generations. There's probably not an extreme version of any system that will serve all those goals. So how do we try and create a dialogue and a nurturing ecosystem that lets us build patches and move and evolve and actually try things out and see if they work and use feedback loops to go back and improve it? So um, we've started to use this metaphor. of You're walking along the, an A-line roof and it's like it's really easy to just slide down one side into the gutter and live in the gutter, right? Like if, if you're trying to walk along this A-line roof, it's way easier to go, all right, am I red or blue? I'm just going to slide down into that gutter and live in that gutter. But it's like that's very rarely the best way to do it. How, how can you actually start to navigate, you know, along the pinnacle of that roof line and it's a bit trickier. You, you, you're looking at the left side and looking at the right side, whatever, you know, expression of communities or views or ideologies they hold. And you're trying to pick a path that remains true to your values and your goals and, and can hold the complexity of these challenging systems without just giving up and sliding into one side of the gutter. And every time someone's like, pick a team, I'm like, I'm sorry, that's a binary choice. Like, I, I don't want to play a binary game. I want to find the perfect combination that will keep evolving for where we're at. So I think with that stuff, I'm like, don't try and say there's only two options here. It's not binary. There's there's other multifaceted solutions that do have a bit of community and forward thinking that do try and put a cost to emissions that currently we're not charged for, but we can see they're doing damage. Like, I, I want to find a solution that holds all the complexity of this space and, and tries to give us the best combined solution and way forwards. I have two questions, and they might actually be the same question, but when you're walking on that A-frame and look, what are you looking at on the horizon? Or And then the other question is, you seem like a very optimistic person. What makes you optimistic? Maybe those are the same thing. I'm not sure. Um, so as with any model, like it breaks down. So, <laughs> you know, the roof analogy can only, or metaphor can only go so far. Sure. But I think, I think for us, it's like Tyson Yankaporta, who wrote a book, Sand Talk, recently. He's, he's this fascinating character that was born um, part colonial, part Australian, Indigenous, Aboriginal. And he, he has these really compelling ways of saying, when are we being trapped in a system or a way of thought and when are we going forwards? And one of them is he talks about a boomerang, like, mm. you know, the Australian throwing stick. And he says, when you get down to the edges of the boomerang, either tip of the boomerang, we seem so different. But as you move up the boomerang towards the middle to the deeper values we're all united by the same things. We all want meaningful social connection. We all want to feel productive and valuable in society. Like when, when you get up to the tip of the boomerang, it's we're all the same people. Like we've got the same motivations, the same origins. Like there's so much that unites us. And I think through the complexity of everyday life, we've started to believe we're all so different and we're all motivated by different things. But that's only when we're looking at that real surface level. You know, do you like 
big trucks or do you like small <laughs> Teslas or you know, whatever. It's like, but at the end of the day, we're all trying to connect with our tribe. We're trying to have meaningful relationships. We're all trying to feel good about our future, our next generation. We're trying to do that. And so I think that optimism is coming from that thing of if we can have meaningful dialogue, if we can have interactions where we look beyond the real identity politics and get to what, like, what's at the root of humanity and what do we really care about and how can we be stewards of a planet and the other life on that planet, then there's a lot to be optimistic about because there are these beautiful thought communities starting to tease that out and look at the next cultural evolutions and look at the next ways we can come together. So I think that's one part of it. And then I think... Another part is that like every technology brings new challenges, new issues, new things. And you're either a a tech worshipper or a tech hater, but there's actually a way to just be a tech agnostic and say, well, if we're motivated by these deeper human goals, then when is tech in service of it and when is it compromising it? And how can we design things that reduce the negative impacts of that tech? And so there's a way to have tech service humanity's goals rather than all of a sudden we're slaves to the technology. And so, for instance, when I think about the massive environmental challenges we're facing, I actually think it's tech that's going to help us face those. It's not just the classical version of tech. Technology is like when you improve a way that communities can have meaningful dialogue and finish on really valuable kind of aligned visions. That's a form of technology. And so as we start to have these great thought communities, as we start to let the cream rise to the top in terms of which ideas can really have a bigger impact and do more, then that's a form of technology, hopefully coming to the rescue. We've got to be cautious of new technologies and we've got to know every new technology will come with some serious detriments and issues but we can then design to reduce those. And it is a more holistic look at cultural technology, you know, organic technology, all these different versions and how they interface to give us a more optimistic path forwards. Somehow I knew that Bellroy was from Australia, even in the early days, but you're, you're, you're a citizen of the world in the sense that I think many people wouldn't know that they would come to your website and maybe think you're based out of the U S or some somewhere else. And, um, and, and that is something that the internet and kind of e-commerce has enabled. How do you balance kind of like being part of the global consciousness? And But at the same time, what does your Australian roots provide in terms of flavor or culture that makes you different? Oh, gosh, that's such an interesting area to dig into. Um So you're right, you know, Bellroy sells in 120 countries each month. The US is actually our largest market, but not by that much. You know, we've got major global economies, you know, the founders of Bellroy and then all our early staff and then all our later staff generally think of themselves as global citizens. You know, we're not really aligned to one nationality or one ideologue. We're not like strong patriots with massive flags in our backyards. Instead, we, we know that there's beautiful humans all over the world that we can learn from and engage with and do that. So I think we, we have always had that sort of global citizen mindset. One of the things about Australia is it's, it's both one of the oldest nations, you know, 60,000 plus years of Australian Indigenous continuous cultural evolution through there. And then, you know, the English arrived just over 200 years ago. So it's, it's quite new there. And so 
We have deep scars in our history of what that colonialisation period looked like that's still continuing. But then we don't have as many recent kind of more traditional Western scars of like battling nation states where the memories of those wars still live on. And so it's, it's, it's been settled by so many nationalities. Like when you walk around the streets of Melbourne, you know, you're smelling the food of, you know, 10 different nationalities and you're seeing people of every single dress and skin tone and language. And it's, it's all this beautiful hot soup of just like difference. And it's not a homogenous culture in any sense. It's still alive and sparking and moving. And so I think there's all of those routes where it's like so many Australians will travel after they finish high school, go spend a year. You know, I've studied in Scotland for a year. I've worked in London for a year. I've traveled the world. And so the whole world is this playground we want to be in. But then when it comes to the brand, we also want to acknowledge that we don't want one solution for every country. We, we want something that feels Bellroy anywhere you are. But then it should take a little bit of the local nuance and flavour as you get there. So sometimes it's in really literal things, like some countries have really tall currency, tall bills. And so we have to make the wallets taller to fit those bills <laughs> in certain countries. So sometimes it's like a really literal kind of localization. But then it's also like we want partners and friends and people helping us contextualise the brand in that country and make sure it doesn't feel too alien and too foreign so that people are willing to step into it. And then once they engage with the brand, then hopefully they start to see more global influences shaping it and moving it. Early on, some people thought we were a New York brand. Some thought we were an LA <laughs> brand. You did very well to pick up on the Australian aspect early. But we've never wanted that to dominate the brand either. We've always wanted it to feel like a brand that di different folks in different regions can still make their own and feel a connection with. As we wrap up here, I'm wondering if people want to get into your brain and figure out what you've been thinking about lately. Are there books or podcasts or shows or movies or anything that you've been that have been influential or that you've been reading and or listening to lately that you've really enjoyed? And I know I'm putting you on the spot, so <laughs> I can waffle for longer if you need to think about it. No, no, I, I think there's many areas I'm intrigued by at the moment. You know, the, the brand itself, we try and share things. So when you sign up to our newsletter, you, you get these things that give you little breadcrumbs into other thought spaces. So we'll share a discussion that we had around sustainability and responsibility, but where we've been able to go into much more depth. So that sort of, and, and I'll reference things while we do that, or you, you can follow some of the other, you know, Lena Calabria co-founder, she'll appear on certain things talking around supply chain and logistics and, mm. and a whole bunch of um, spaces that she talks in with extreme depth and nuance. So I, I think you can follow those things. But when, when I talk about things I'm jazzed on at the moment personally, I think trying to really understand uh, some people will describe it as the Robert Keegan developmental methods where it's like, We've come through this stage of what he would label Keegan 4, which was we really tried to create these system solutions and then we worshipped the system and we were sort of blind to what was happening on the edges and the negative consequences of that. And then as you try to get to the next level, you've got to try and be a bit more comfortable in complex spaces, in interrelationships, in 
things that move between spaces and influence each other. So I think there's some incredible communities like the Stoa is a YouTube series and a whole bunch of interviews with people that are playing in this space, emergence, stuff there. I, I think there's great things like Shane Parrish and the Knowledge Project when you're trying to learn sort of the nuts and bolts frameworks that do a lot of heavy lifting in the world. And so we've loved watching the evolution of the Knowledge Project and Farnham Street and Shane Parrish's growing community and influence there. Sand Talk, that book by Tyson Yunkaporter, it's like you've almost got to, I, I think if people start to engage with that, they, they might get triggers that sort of start to go, oh, no, is this just washy? Is this silly? You've almost got to treat it like as a science fiction of like just give up all your defences and just move into this thought space for a bit and just experience it and play with it without the normal defences of saying, no, you know, you're, you're throwing rocks at my ancestors here. I, I hate you. Like just give up your defences, move in and just treat it as a science fiction or a thought experiment and see what it does. And it might just start to help you understand where some of your blinkers might exist. You know, that's a great one. I'm, I mean, I'm reading right now on the Black Jacobins and the largest estate on earth and a whole series of things that are trying to go into older cultures as a new culture tried to jam itself into it and what happened and where were the frictions and how did the stories of history change according to who wrote them. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> These are all more sort of esoteric, crazy things. No, right no, I like that too. You know, I, I think that what we'll put a link as well to the newsletter because it sounds like that's a, a really great resource for people who want to get into you and, and the whole team's uh, kind of train of thought and what they're absorbing. I, I love just kind of hearing what people are reading and, and what their inputs are. Those are all new to me, so I want to explore them. Uh, I'll throw one out that I just started reading probably like four or five years uh, ago. There was a documentary that came out that uh, called Yodorovsky's Dune about the story of uh, how this Dune movie never got made. And I am still on like a tertiary level uh, exploration because that had so many references uh, to other movies and books and things that were inspirational in the making of this movie that never got made. So it sent me on all of these kind of separate threads. Like, And now I'm at the like third level down thread. I got a series of... Um, graphic novels from this French graphic novel artist, Enki Bilal, um, which uh, I think is very well known in France, but not so well known outside of France. Uh, so that's what I've been reading lately. It's kind of like right. Blade Runner meets Memento type of kind of guy who has this like strange memory. So that's what I've been reading lately if uh, people want to go into some some more random explorations. <laughs> I, I love that. And as you were describing the Dune one, it's like I, I really love not just consuming the result of something but trying to come in earlier in the process and watch how the goals changed and the processes changed and watch like watch the genuine story of evolution to then arrive at an idea or not arrive at it, depending on what happened. Because so often we just consume the sort of survivorship bias stuff of those that made it through the challenging bit and we just consume the fancy thing at the end. But when you go deep and you, you watch the evolution and you watch the thoughts evolving, it's messier, it's it's more intriguing and it feels so much more real. Well, uh, I totally agree. And I could keep talking to you for another two hours, but I know that you've got to get ready 
for some uh, horse racing and get back to your weekend. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much, Andy. It was really a pleasure to have you on. And uh, congrats on 10 years of uh, Bellroy. I hope uh, you get another 10 years and we'll check in uh, <laughs> hopefully before then. Before then, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for holding such a fascinating discussion space and getting so many interesting characters in and and trying to sort of break under the surface and and understand the shape of how those things come to life um thank you it's it's so many great episodes to listen to and consume that you've hosted thank you that's a great great compliment thanks for listening if you enjoyed the show if you got something useful out of it i would love to hear what that was consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks and see you next time.